Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. Now, if you're a business owner and you have poured your heart and your soul into your business over the years, but you've got to a time of life where you want to sell, what do you do? Well, my guest this week helps his clients do just that. His name is Kevin Uphill, and he is the founder of Avondale. Now, Avondale help their clients with business sales, deal negotiations, growth capital, and employee benefit trusts. We discuss all these topics in this episode, especially employee and benefit trusts, EBTs, which in my view are some of the best structures to share the economics of your business with your employees and in doing so, align the interests in the long term. Now, this is something that is so often done so badly with dire long-term consequences. We talk about this together with Kevin. Kevin was a legend. He's incredibly generous with his time and energy. And if you're mulling over a business sale, you should go and talk to him and his team at avondale.co.uk. But without further ado, this is the Why Invest podcast. Kevin Uphill, welcome to the podcast. Now, Kevin, I want to start with your background. Where did you grow up and how did you start your career? Well, hi, Douglas. I grew up as a posh Sally schoolboy, but uh, was bottom set for everything. And I've realized... That's because I think forward, not backwards. I've got a memory like a goldfish. But actually, PDA devices have sold me. Mobile phones, you know, they've, they've been a great saver for me in terms of memory. So I'm canny, but not uh, academic. And I started my career at NatWest as a management development trainee. And interestingly, I had that job offered to me regardless of whatever A-levels I got. And that's probably because I'm a salesman as well. I think being a salesman is a really important part of being a businessman. It's always interesting in sales, so a key part of what we do. I suppose, actually, this answers my next question, which is what sort of experiences in your formative years have most shaped you today? I started as a finance professional, and actually, you know, we were getting involved in with NatWest, you know, watching finance to SMEs, became very interested in small businesses. Actually, I did do my business studies A-level was a business review of an estate agency, so, you know... kind of been interested in that space for a long, long time. And what we could see happening was that the big accountants who historically had sold businesses in the SME, small to medium enterprise space, were were moving away. And you had agents that didn't understand business models, didn't really understand accounts. They came at it more from a property angle. So there was a big gap as to who was going to advise these people. At the same time, we started in the mid-90s, but tax breaks started to come in around selling companies with the view that it was an important driver to increase reinvestment in in the economy, help people scale up businesses. And therefore, more people were going to be building companies to sell. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing I saw, partly from the bank, but also uh, worked in the insurance sector briefly after that, but you could see family succession was reducing. today. I'd say family succession in the SME space from our research is something like one in 20. Back then, it was five in 20. So, you know, it's an important change. Well, let's go on to introduce Avondale, which is a, a company that you founded, as you say, back in the 90s, 1991, you started. Um, I wonder if you can give us a sort of idiot's guide to Avondale in its current form. What's its value proposition? Yeah, so... Today, fundamentally, we provide lead advisory services on what we actually call the emerging mid-market. We think the definition of SME is wrong, it's too broad, and our focus is on companies that make 350000 
to you know five six million, and that's a deal range of sort of two to fifty million. Uh, SMEs cover a much broader range than that, and and actually for us that means that the advisory set is spread too thin. There's not enough specialists within the emerging mid market, but also we're passionate, and I do occasionally get to talk to MPs and stuff about this, but. If we're going to fix the economic problems, it's the emerging mid-market you need to identify, not the SME, because those are the stars of the future. It's a lot easier to scale up a business that makes three, four hundred thousand, or even a million or two, than it is to take a lifestyle business that makes a hundred grand a year and grow it. So you've got to identify them better, and you've got to give them more support. Avondale's proposition today is all about that support. We're quite unusual that we're an M&A firm that also has a small strategy practice. And that means that we are exit options whole of market. So we, we don't just sell companies on a trade basis. We do private equity fundraising, growth capital transactions. Uh, we do management buyouts. We also do employee ownership trusts. But also, if the time is not right, we will say so, and we will help people prepare to get the time right. So we help them prepare to create the shareholder value rather than tell them a number and then hope that we can achieve it. I think what that means is that we lead advisory, we do all our deals from start to finish, and we tend to get involved earlier, not always, but we, we, we're very happy to, than many other advisors. But because we're not any one strategy bias, we're getting best advice on, well, actually, you might want to look at it this way. And in fact, just technical from one of my colleagues, they've got a trade deal on the table. It turns out they've got a half million pound gap. And they were saying, well, what do you think? And we said, well, actually, with that half million pound gap, we think employee ownership trust is maybe a quicker and easier route for you. And they went, well, what's that? We'll come back to some of the more technical sort of tools in your toolkit and, you know, employee ownership trust, one of those trade dealers, one, another one. I wonder, though, when in your ideal world do you want to meet your clients? And what does your sort of business development activity look like? We do a lot of webinars. A lot of people track us because we do a lot of education and thought leadership stuff. So I think the answer is at any stage in in the journey to being an emerging mid-market business, there's not many of us that specialise purely in that space. You know, you've got the big corporate, say the big accountants tend to focus on that, so their stuff is a bit lofty. And then you've got the brokers, which is a bit salesy, a bit pitchy. Our mindset is... Talk to people early, give them insight early, and then we're on a shared journey. So we're, we're always happy to talk to people well in advance. And I just want to dig into your history a little bit, Sir Davendale, because, you know, 30 years is, is a long time to be operating. I wonder how the landscape has changed and the advisory landscape has changed across the, those three decades. Yeah, well, it's, it's changed a lot. The property agents that sold businesses have faded. And for us, we see the sector now very much as you've got business brokers who just, you know, quite good at advertising and creating an auction, but, you know, not good at the technicalities. And, you know, where we said historically the big accountants were leaving this gap, in the past that was perceived at, say, up to 10 million, you know, um, but increasingly some of the big firms aren't even interested in operating at that level. They got too expensive, they got too posh, and also they're not necessarily remembering how to sell. So quite good at the technicalities of debt, cash, free and all that stuff, which is a hygiene point. You need to be good at that in, in corporate finance. Because the world's got so much more technical, as a shift away from just being sales, you really do have to be technical today. So joking about my full circle of I wasn't very good at school, actually, 
30 years of solving puzzles, I really have got more intelligent because it's complicated. So you've got to be able to do both. You've got to be able to do the technical and the selling. And actually the client's the same. So the biggest shift was it was okay to be a big picture entrepreneur and not do the details 15 years ago. You're dead in the water if you do it today. I wonder if you can give an example of perhaps a client who's come to you who is that sort of big picture, moonshot, total addressable market type person. That would, would be Richard Branson. Would he survive today? I don't know the difference between turnover and gross profit. I, well, you can hire people, but you've got to get through the gap. It's like skating on ice. I think it's too risky. So, you know, if you were the big picture entrepreneur, and we do meet them still, that's very visionary and utterly driven, you've got to get yourself a very strong second tier. And in particular, in the market we're addressing, the emerging mid-market, we think the finance director is a really critical role that is underutilised and misunderstood. So I do a lot of talks for people like Seaman, our Charity Institute Management Accountants. And, you know, the role of finance director is much broader. You know, the accounting should be digitised. It shouldn't be about can you add up and create the account. The system should do that. The question is, you know, what reports are you doing? How are they integrated? How are all the divisions operating in a business together rather than silos? And a good finance director can start looking at some of that rather than just adding up the numbers. So, so I, think, I think, you know, you can be the big picture, you know, product or services person, but you've got to be really clear how you're going to build a professional management team. And when we do our strategy work, we do a model... You've heard the old-fashioned one, which is working on the business, not in it. And we all, I think, understand that when we're talking to entrepreneurs. Just stay on that. So just elaborate on what it means to be working on the business, not in the business. If you were a chef, you're cooking rather than designing the restaurants. But of course, we understand it. But what happens in times of dramatic change, which is what we've got, working on is kind of looking up, working in is looking down. Mm-hmm. But you're constantly, because you're up against this very volatile market, what's happening is people are being forced to look down. Now, our answer to that is that, that we understand that, and we have a great deal of sympathy for that, but the real heart of how you scale businesses is to build a stronger second tier and create a more team-driven business. So those guys have got to be higher quality. They've got to be able to know more about the broader spectrum of the business, i.e. it's no good being a marketing person saying I don't understand numbers or a numbers person saying I don't understand marketing. It doesn't work that way in a small business. And actually, the big answer to that is training. If you look at big corporates, they spend fortunes on training. Mm-hmm. If you look at SMEs and our focus of emerging mid-market, yeah, vocational training, but going beyond that, training about fiduciary duties, directorships, leadership, business models, it's very thin on the ground. And so what you end up with is you end up with this sort of pyramid, don't you, where the, the entrepreneur at the top should have that, but in fact the funnel goes the other way, so it should be a triangle, but the triangle ends up upside down. And everything's been rammed up to the MD because he can't delegate because his team's not good enough. Yeah, I see. So what does an interaction with Avondale look like? So say I'm running a business at 350,000 to 5, 6 million in profit, I come to you, how do you help me? So we ask what you want to achieve. We look at where you are. We do a gap analysis. So in particular, that one might be most businesses, again, people, yeah, you know, good talking about profit, but how does that actually translate to shareholder value? 
What's the personal ambition and strategy for the shareholders? What's the risk profile of the shareholders? So very much pinpointing where they are and then highlighting options. So it's not an assumptive. If somebody says to us, you know, I want to sell my business, the question actually back is why and do you? Not that we're trying to persuade them not to. It's just trying to analyze the overall equation for them so it's a better strategy. It's more reflective and it's more fact-finding and it's more about giving them insight. Do you start to sort of move into this sort of financial planning realm and financial planning and, and kind of trying to establish sort of purpose within the business manager's life? Yes, yeah, so, so, so a classic would be how much time do they spend on management meetings as opposed to board meetings? And invariably, we find a lot of the time is on management meetings, you know, operational. But a board meeting in terms of strategy would be, you know, what are we doing not to manage our profit? Well, what are we doing to manage our price earnings multiple, for example? And, and, and lots of people haven't thought about that. So you start doing that, then you might be able to identify either they're in very good shape and they're very happy with the valuation or there's a gap. But the opposite of that is if you're managing how you increase the value through looking at multiple influences on the business, which we are doing in that strategy, not just through an auction to get the right buyer. Of course, we need to do that. It's a hygiene point. And we, we absolutely do that. We get typically three or four bids per project, and that drives the value. But the, the other angle to that preparation is not, well, not what shape does the company need to be in, but also what shape do the shareholders need to be in? And quite often that's different and they don't realise it. So they've never done a risk profile and you might well find that you've got you know, one person that desperately wants to sell because they don't know how to spend money and all they've ever done is tap it away and that's jolly nice for them. And then the others have a less or more volatile life, shall we say, you know, divorce behind them or whatever, it needs every penny, doesn't want to sell because whatever number you put in front of them, it's not enough. So you, you get into what is the value of the business and how do we enhance it? What are the aspirations of the shareholders? What's their risk profile? Where are they individually? And trying to create more alignment in that, which you know isn't always there. And then the final thing is many, many entrepreneurs don't look at their personal financial position. You know, the, the business is the pension. Uh, they probably put too much time and money and effort into the business and, and not necessarily tapped away enough. So they haven't really considered their personal financial position. And, and then, of course, this question, when is enough enough, it's say, when's right for the company, when's right for you individually, but also what can you afford to do in terms of retirement? So we had a client the other day who was saying that, you know, we, we're valuing the business. We need to probably get six or seven million quid. It's quite a lot of money, really, between husband and wife now. You know, they have let on their financial circumstances. They have already managed to pay the mortgage off on the big house. They want a holiday home at some point. But they say, oh, I need, you know, I'm a bit worried on seven million. Am I going to get, you know, three or four hundred thousand a year to live on? And I went, well, first thing is your investment advisor should be telling you yes. Otherwise, you're not a very good investment advisor, which I hope you would concur with. But the second one is, he's 52. Three, four hundred thousand years, great when you need a brand new e-tron every couple of years because you're an MD. But when you're chilling out a bit more when you're retired, you know, do, do you really need to go down that route? So your income tails off as you retire. It strikes me that he's so focused on the P&L from the business 
and also his pride was associated with what he earns each year, they haven't done a balance sheet. They haven't looked at what their net worth is now, what the yield to that net worth is going to be, and also what the life cycle on that yield is going to be versus their ages. Again, all you end up with is a massive great inheritance tax problem because people sort of overshoot. My financial advisor came over the other day. One of our businesses was an IFA at one point. We sold it on. It wasn't very big, but we, we understand it. And my financial advisor came on to me the other day and really focusing on IHT and what have you. And I said, do you know what? I'm just not that fussed about IHT. It doesn't bother me that much. Yeah, I want to do a bit of planning. But if I end up paying a very large sum of money to the government, that's my ultimate charity act. I've tried to save tax through my life. You know, everyone's got a different philosophy to it, but he could not move off that subject. Good advisors will go deeper. And financial advisors will do the same. And I, and I think portfolio managers are good at saying, well, what's your house worth and what's your income? But they don't know where to start even saying, what's your, what's your company value and how does that impact the number? It's very interesting. There's a sort of quite large subjective argument to what is, I suppose, quite an objective figure. I just want to move on to the sort of tools in your toolkit when you're approaching your clients and when you're, you're working with your clients. And really focus actually on, on EOTs employee ownership trusts. Um, first of all, if you could just give us a, a guide to what is an EOT and how do you use them? Yeah, I think the answer is, just, just for a second, remind you that the trade sale, we go out, we find a trade buyer and or private equity, they'll buy them with your shares and you'll get the majority of cash on day one. And you, you know, you'll probably be out sooner rather than later. But you will pay tax at 20% on, those, on the sale of those shares. And it's reduced by business asset disposal relief to 10% on anything over a, a million per executive shareholder. But employee ownership trust is different. You only pay tax at 0%, so they've got a big tax advantage. But they're misunderstood, and they, they kind of pick up where MBOs used to be. Management buyout. Management buyout. The trust is going to own the shares on behalf of all the employees, so it doesn't need to be driven by managers. It can be driven by the vendor. And the managers don't have to sign up to it, although you do need to create some alignment with it. So what you do is you set up a trust, which is a company limited by guarantee. It buys the old co on behalf of all the employees. And you use any spare cash that the company's built up to help pay for the deal. But also you use the future cash flow to help pay for the deal. And typically, you might do that over six or seven years, which means that you're going to beat the valuation you get with a management buyout, which typically would be over three to four years. The other reason that beats the management buyout is because of the 0% tax. And then finally, because you haven't got to get the management's approval, so it's vendor-driven or vendor-led. The downside is, and we have got some where we're doing third-party debt, so we're increasing the upfront, but the downside is you've got to wait a bit more for some of your money because you know, the company's buying itself for the benefit of the employees. That money can only come from one place, you know, which is either a vendor loan or debt, and therefore it's going to be cash-driven, flow-driven over the period. So if you need all the money on day one and you can get a multiple of eight and it's all cash on completion, do the trade deal. But if you're a sector that hasn't got high recurring revenue, you're your mid-50s, you don't really want to give up working, you don't want to become one of these sort of part of a great retirement yet, you know, you kind of still like work. You sell your company to trust, you can carry on being involved. 
which is a really important part of this. I've sold businesses for 30 years, and sometimes people who have sold businesses don't thrive afterwards because they miss it. They miss the, you know, we call it grief. EOTs get rid of that because it's a very soft exit. You can stay involved as an employee. So it's a really interesting sale because it's vendor-led, because you can stay involved, because there's 0% tax. Yeah, the one downside is you might have to wait a bit more for your money. And crucially, I guess, Kevin, there's an alignment of interests. You're aligning interests between employees and shareholders. I mean, I don't want to go into the realms of politics, but actually this was, I think, am I right in saying that this came into force in 2014? Correct. This actually hasn't been a bad policy in terms of the sort of redistribution of wealth from capital to income earners. All the main parties want them, and there's now a thousand. So in 2014, when this first came in, it was about 200. There's now a thousand. So it's been a slow take up, but it's really starting to accelerate. But you know what? You're right, Douglas. It's a really important part. I'm very passionate about it. I'm passionate about trade sales as well, because what I'm actually passionate about is can we get EMEs to contribute more to the economy by scale up? And whether that's an EOT or trade, I don't mind because it's just different for every business. But the fundamentals are. These businesses are the future Dysons, for want of a better word. Not all of them will be, but they, they, you know, some of them might make it. And what's the right business model? And employee ownership, as you say, gets rid of some issues we've got in society around social mobility. It increases local investment. All employees get up to 3600 a year tax-free bonus. So now you've got to load that into the valuation model, but for a lot of the lower paid workers, that makes a hell of a difference to their lifestyle. That's a hell of a lot. Whilst we're very keen to make sure our sellers have done all the hard work, get top dollar for an EOT, what we're even more excited about is the purposeful capitalism behind it. If you do create alignment with the senior management team in particular around that business model, what you actually do is you create very long sustainable business model. You get rid of the succession issue because not every business is right for sale anyway, particularly if you haven't got high recurring revenue. The biggest multiple influencer on valuations is whether it's contracted revenue or not. Well, if you haven't got that, but you've still got a great business, EOTs become really interesting. Now, I want to ask, I want to sort of broaden the conversation and ask a, a perhaps a sort of wider question on common mistakes. What are the sort of common mistakes you see or you come across when interacting with your clients? And, um, you know, how do you approach fixing them? Because I guess there's quite a lot of what I probably call light touch guidance that you need to do without ostracizing your clients. So sort of how do you solve those problems? Well, I, I need to really, you know, so again, come back to the sort of the specialism that we've got. There are too many advisors that are spread across all sizes of businesses so they don't really get it, whereas most of our clients have the same challenges, which is generally the team-driven business isn't truly there. They haven't got roles and responsibilities right with the second tier, and they just need to get better at that. I call it a village. So the average SME or emerging mid-market is a village. Everyone gets on. But accountability isn't necessarily there and roles and responsibilities aren't necessarily there. But we need to take them into the city for a while. It becomes uncomfortable, but that's sort of Jack Welch's bottom 10% out every year. Roles and responsibility, what part of the job, you know, on your job description do you not understand? 
you can then drive the growth by getting that element clearer across the team. So I think the fundamentals are there's just a sort of lack of structure in the thinking around the difference between leadership and management and team-driven and owner-driven. And, and that's that's a, a really key area in preparing companies to sell. Because the biggest mistakes made when you're selling a business are lack of preparation. And one of those might be where the business is too dependent on the owners. So, you, you know, then buyers go, well, that's high risk, so then we want a high earn out. The other thing is I, get, I think people underestimate the level of compliance involved in doing deals today. You know, we, we've all seen it and, you know, been doing it 30 years, but the amount of red tape and legislation that's come in over the last 30 years is enormous. Again, not wishing to get into the politics of that, but you've got to check every single one of those boxes from an M&A perspective, and people underestimate it. I mean, we've done a lot to reduce that challenge by creating marketing data rooms and deal data rooms, but it doesn't alter the simple fact is you need that information. And, and beyond that, you need the information in real time. So, oh, well, we've got the last six months accounts. You know, that's all we've got, you know, what was done six months ago. No, we need monthly management accounts. We need a real-time P&L. We need a real-time balance sheet. And we need forecasts. Otherwise, you're not going to save it. Again, you're back almost to who's the FD. What's the difference between a finance controller and an FD? Because there is a big difference. And don't underestimate the level of diligence the bar is going to put on. I rather like the image of of taking uh, people from the village to the city, the country mouse going up to meet the town mouse. I wonder if we can turn to examples. Now, I would urge our listeners to head to your website at avondale.co.uk. There is a a wealth of content on there, including um, case studies, I think over 30 case studies. I wonder if you can highlight one or two specific examples of, of where you've helped clients. Okay, so uh, we just we just completed a, a, a business called Red Kangaroo, which was a, a trampolining car. We actually knew the buyer, so that was good. They'd already had the buyer, but the buyer wasn't going to pay enough money. And by being an open market broker and creating the auction, got the value to the right price and went full circle back to the original buyer. So that, that's a nice little story. But also, we've known that owner for 12 years. And this is a good story. A guy, a guy called Paul, he had... Uh, Previously sold a business in a similar sector, then started this and had really struggled to get it going. So we went in and did a bit of strategy work to try and get him. And the biggest issue is he overlaid an old business model on a new times. His old business model was built on email and that doesn't work anymore. It's all about Instagram and, and Facebook and you know, he was struggling with that. So I think that's a nice story. We did a, um, an auction for a, a veterinary hospital, uh, NDSR. We got up to five bids, took that from nine to something like off the top of my head, 16 and a half million, something like that. So just through running the auction and finding the right buyers. But one of the things I liked about that project, and one of my colleagues, uh, Lady called Sally, was running it, but you know, I was helping. Uh, we were up against BDO to win the pitch, and they said, you get the people, and we are a professional practice. Mm-hmm. We come back to lead advisory. It's not just about the numbers. It's about the culture of the deal and the people. And so we were able to structure the deal around the people rather than just the numbers. So, so that, that was a good one. And then last year we did a, an EOT, so Benbo Steels. That was quite fun. They had tried to do a trade sale probably five years ago, not for us. 
not Benbo still, sorry, Benbo Joinery. And they are a uh, joinery company providing retail equipment for jewelry shops and stuff like that in particular. So if you bought a Posh Watch, you probably bought one out of one of their cabinets. And they, they tried to do a trade deal. They knew it wasn't right. And that's partly because we're based, you know, it's the West Country. There's 80-odd people. It's manufacturing of cabinetry. It's quite specialist. And it wasn't going to be a scale of that. You're not going to have hundreds of manufacturing units like that. When they tried to do the trade deal, they were so hands-on that they kept getting very high earnout offers. And then in the last five years, they cleverly had built a management team, which was a good one. And then they came across the employee ownership trust, didn't know what it was, came to a couple of our webinars, started to track us, started to talk to us, started to read all our guides, and went, you know what? We know what an earnout is because we've seen that in a trade deal. We'd rather have an earnout with ourselves. So we've recently just sold it to all of the 80 employees of an employee ownership trust. I wonder if you then look from or move your, your gaze from looking outward to looking inward and looking at Avondale and what the future holds for Avondale. I wonder what, where do you see the company in five years' time and what's the vision? Well, I think the balance of probabilities we ourselves will probably go down the employee owned route, but I don't know that. Um, we're not getting younger, just the uh, early 50s, let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. But we really enjoy what we do. And I think that's, that's a passion in Avondale. We do not see it just as. It's all about numbers. It's about people. It's about strategy. And that, that's a great job. And we're getting to meet some of the most successful and interesting people in the UK. You know, starting a business from scratch and getting it to you know, these sort of uh, numbers, you know, you're dealing with the top athletes at the top of their game and, and we're part of the coach. So I think it will be more of the same. Over the years, we've had to be agile to survive. I think you know, it's something to coach on with the strategy side of it. Business models change every 10 years today. It used to be every 20 years. And so we've always done that. Our last change, you know, COVID-driven, we'll admit, but it's worked brilliantly. We're already onto it. But going virtual means we can recruit from all over the UK, which creates more diversity in our team, and that's good. But also means we're far more productive because we're not going into an office just ticking the boxes. We're delivering the outcome on, on the screen, if you like. So our, our margins have been going up, our profits have been going up, our deal values have been going up. And I think, you know, it's more of the same in that at some point we've got to recruit some uh, more younger people to take on the, the mantle. And you never know, we might join one of the big accountants, but I, I'm not convinced. Well, that leads me perfectly and brilliantly onto my final question, which is advice and what advice you would give to our younger listeners who are perhaps thinking about a career in corporate finance or business advisory, what advice would you give to them? What skills do you think they need to equip themselves with to be successful in the industry? We're kind of in the New Year's resolutions, isn't it? So I'm not going to say go to the gym, do yoga, because that only lasts a month. I think what I'm going to say is get up on time, do what you say you're going to do, be insightful, and don't be boring. Yeah, really important part. Don't pitch, bring ideas. And actually to do that, you know, whether that's you as a business owner with your leadership team, you've got to go away and do the research. So, you know, we talked earlier about this working on not in, you know, concept. I think even if you've just got a job, you need to do the same. Where are you getting your fresh ideas and inspiration from? And how can that impact on what you are doing so you bring something different? 
It's a very, very competitive world. Margins are squeezed. What can you do better than others? Now, that takes time and thought and headspace. And the more you're looking at the media and the negative bias of all of that, the less chance you've got to create a fresh mindset at what you're doing. So just give yourself the space to be yourself and bring that imagination to whatever it is you're doing, whether it's a you know, business owner. And I think you, know, you asked about career advice. I'll go back full circle for business owners. They are being forced to firefight. It's the same, isn't it? Okay, we're defining it as working on the business, but how do you make sure you put the time into the creative fun stuff, which is less obvious, but actually makes the bigger difference? It's sage advice. What a pleasure that was. Kevin Uphill, thank you for joining me. Thank you very much, Douglas. Thank you for listening to the Wine Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton, and our guest this week, Kevin Uphill from Avondale. If you've enjoyed this episode, or indeed the series, why not like us, subscribe to us, and let your friends and colleagues know. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.